Well, today's Vision Sunday. A lot of you have been looking forward to that. Hope you're not disappointed today. Uh, but um, it's, it's a good day. And I typed in, as I was preparing my message, I typed in vision on the computer. And the first thing that came up was vision humor. What did the right eye say to the left eye? Between you and me, there's something that smells. Patient. I keep getting a stabbing pain in my eye every time I drink coffee. Doctor, have you tried taking the spoon out of the cup? That's a good one. Why did the phone wear glasses? Because he lost all his contacts. But my favorite one is this. What do you call a deer with no eyes? No idea. <laughs> Helen Keller said this. The only thing worse than being blind is to have sight and have no vision. And we need vision. We truly do. Organizations need vision. Businesses need vision. Individuals need vision. Churches need a vision. Why are we here? What is it that God wants us to do? Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the King James translation. The NIV says, Where there is no revelation from God, the people cast off restraint. There's nothing to guide them. They restrain. Revelation means a vision from God. God wants us to have a vision. Different churches have different visions of what it is they're supposed to do. Now we have an overarching vision to... to glorify Christ, but even back in the biblical days, Peter, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to the Gentiles. Peter, you stay here and minister to the Jewish people. So different churches have different vision. We have come up with a new vision. You've seen our vision on the wall back there right now, our purpose statement, connecting people to Christ to make devoted disciples. We're still going to do that, but we're going to package it differently now and we're going to get a message out to the world that's positive and brings hope to the world. And that's our goal, to do that. Now, how do we get to the process of our new vision and mission and values? We spent some time. We have a church coach that came and helped us. Uh, he has done this now for several years. He had a church of over 5,000 people, and now he runs an organization called E2 Effective Elders. Gary Johnson is his name. He didn't come down here and tell us what to do. He came down here to help us discover what we want to do as a church and how we want to package that. You know, a lot of times it's been said it's the same message, it's just in a new envelope. And today we're going to present to you that. Gary worked with us. We've met with him twice uh, for about nine hours the first time, and I think the second time we met with him, it was about 10 or 11 hours, and he worked with our elders and our deacons and some of the leaders in the church to help us discover what we want our church to be about as we seek to glorify Christ. We've put together a video, and I hope you enjoy this video to help you understand our new vision and mission and values.
In March of 2022, our church leadership met to determine a new vision statement, a new mission statement, and define the core values that lead us as a church. This process allowed us to reevaluate who we are as a church, our purpose for our church, how we can accomplish this purpose, and the guiding principles that will lead us along the way. Vision. Our vision statement is a dream we want to become true. Hope changes everything. We want people in our community and throughout the whole world to know the hope of Jesus. Mission. Our mission statement defines how we can accomplish the vision we have for Central. Love God, love people, serve both. Core values. While our church has many values, the following core values are the ones we hold close. Christ is central. Scripture is true. Community is vital. Spiritual growth is essential. The next generation is a priority. These principles will serve as a filter for decision making and help us determine if we are on the right path. So I think our um, deacons are going to come and pass out some bookmarks that have all this information on it. So uh, you will have it to take with you. Uh, we had to tell the first service to keep it a secret from y'all. And so hopefully they did that and it didn't spoil it for you. But this is our new vision and mission and values. And you're going to start to see this on all of our publications. You too can own a t-shirt. And there'll be an announcement later on as to how you get that. But this is what's going to guide our church now as we go forward. And today I want to raise the question, why is hope so important for all people? Especially biblical hope. Why is it important? Why do we want people to know about hope? You know, at all, all people in the world at some point are going to need hope. They're going to face trouble. They're going to face problems that they don't know how to deal with. And they need something to bring hope into their lives. All people need hope because we've all sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. We're not just automatically going to heaven. We need something to bring hope to us that we can find heaven and reach heaven one day when the time comes. And people don't overcome problems, and they don't overcome sin on their own. You know, it doesn't matter how many times you've sinned, you, you, you can't do enough good to overcome that. You need hope some kind of way. You know, there was an experiment done back in the 1950s. Now, we wouldn't do it this way today, but they used laboratory rats. Well, they actually used wild rats. And they, part of the experiment is they dropped these dead rats, I mean, these live rats into jars of water that were over their heads. And when they dropped these rats in there, they swam around for a few minutes, but they had no hope. There was no way to get out. And after two minutes, they all drowned. But they did change the experiment. They pulled the rats out, dropped them back in, and after they, um, uh, after they swam and were almost about to drown, 
they lifted them out of the jar. And then they let them revive and they petted them a little bit and, and helped them uh, get to feel better. And they put them back in the jar. The second time, because they had hope that somebody was going to reach in and pull them out, they swam for much longer. Some of them even for days. Because they had hope. Everybody needs hope. And we want to be a church that strives to get the message in, in, of hope in Jesus Christ out to the world. Listen, i got to tell you something. Y- y'all know I was in the hospital back in June. And when I was laying there in that hospital, about the fourth day in, I was getting worse. I wasn't getting better. You know you're sick when you go to the hospital and you don't get better, you get worse. And you're starting to think, I can't place my hope in these doctors. I can't place my hope in this medicine, all these tubes they got going into me. I need something greater than that. And I'll be honest with you. I had a conversation with the doctor, and I said, Doc, I'm not getting any better. In fact, I feel right now almost as though I'm dying. And he said, well, you could be. But there's hope. And I said, well, if it wasn't for God in my life, I'd give up right now. I'm in that much pain, and I feel that bad. But I knew that no matter what happened in that hospital, if I did die, I knew I was going to a better place. And I knew that probably Jesus was going to help me, and I was going to get better. In fact, at one conversation I had with another doctor, and she, she said to me, don't put your hope in me, put your hope in God. <laughs> and that's what I did. And luckily I made it through, and I'm about 91% better now. So we're, we're getting better every day. But we have to have hope, and as a church, we need to offer hope to the world. The world so desperately needs the hope of Jesus Christ. Now I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 today, Hebrews chapter 6. This is written, the book of Hebrews is written to a a church, a group of people who had been Jewish but had become Christians and now they were starting to drift away a little bit. And the author is trying to bring them back to understand that Christ is the answer, that He is supreme, that He is sufficient to all their needs and that God sent him and God created us to worship him and to follow him and that salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the point of this passage that we're going to read today is that our hope is in Jesus. So read with me here. We'll start at verse 16, Hebrews chapter 6. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make an unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order 
of Melchizedek. And what I want you to see here today, first thing, is that God offered, offered hope in the covenant he made with his people. This passage back beginning at verse 13 takes us all the way back to the person of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. You remember Jesus came into the Jewish culture. His mother was Jewish. His stepfather on earth was Jewish. And God uh, used the Jewish people to introduce Jesus to the world. Now, it's talking about oaths and promises here. Now, oath is it's an affirmation of the truth that somebody says. Somebody says, I'll do this or I'll do that, and they swear an oath. And in that day, they usually swear an oath in front of someone who was greater than them. For example, I swear before the king that I will do this. I'll pay you this money I owe you. I'll do this labor that you wanted me to do. So when you made an oath, you swore before somebody greater than you, and if you didn't keep your oath, that person would take your life. And he had the power to do it. Now, God swore an oath, but he didn't have to. In fact, the text says he wanted to make his purpose clear. And especially he wanted to make his purpose clear for the future generation, the heirs, he said. It also reminds us it's impossible for God to lie. So God made this oath because he wanted people in the future to know what he had promised to Abraham. And he made this grand promise to Abraham. Let's go to Genesis chapter 17 for just a minute and be reminded of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down. God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. The kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, if you break that down a little bit, God promised make Abraham a great nation. Uh, it's funny. Abraham means father of many. Abraham didn't even have one son. Well, he had one illegitimate son by a slave girl, but by his wife Sarah, he didn't even have a son. He was 99 years old. Chances of him having a son were not good. His wife was 89 years old. But when Abraham turned 100 and his wife Sarah turned 90, they had a son. His name was Isaac. He fathered a son. His name was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, the great nation. God's promise was fulfilled as he had promised Abraham. He also said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He said, I'm going to give you a land. That's what You know what nations need? They need land and they need people. 
And God provided that. But the main part of the covenant was, God said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what God wants in this covenant. He wants us to be his people, to follow him. And that's what a God does. He leads people, he oversees, he guides, he protects, he provides, he gives accountability to people. And that's what God wanted. He wanted to be their God and they would be his people. He promised, in short, to bless this people if they would follow him and let him be their God. He wanted other nations to see that when they were obedient and they followed him and they, they, they worshipped him as their God, he poured out blessing on them and they prospered and they had good culture. Over and over again in the Bible, God reminds them of, of, this, of this promise. Exodus 6, 7. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 7, 23. I will be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 11, 4. You will be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 30, 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 28. You will be my people, I will be your God. All the way back in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3. And God said, when the new heaven and the new earth comes, he's going to dwell with us. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God has always had this covenant with us that if we'll let him be our God, he will be our people. And that's what he desires. And God blesses his people. God blessed the Hebrew people. They became the nation of Israel, the Israelites. And God gave them the law of Moses to, to teach them, to guide them and, and show them what he expected and, and help them understand how he wanted to be worshipped at that time. He gave them a sacrificial system. Because you know what? None of us is perfect. And none of us can be perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. And God gave them a sacrificial system so that when they made a mistake, when they sinned against God and they got astray a little bit, they could repent. They made a sacrifice of an animal before God, and God gave atonement. The blood of that animal was substitutionary. It took their place, their death, so that they would be forgiven and the relationship with God restored. Walt Disney once said, You can design and build the most beautiful place in the world, but it's people that make a dream, a vision, a reality. And you know, Walt Disney was right. And God designed this wonderful, grand idea of this nation of people that would follow him. But guess what? The people didn't follow him. They did for a while. And God blessed them while they did. But eventually, they didn't. You see, God's people broke the covenant. And it's sad to say that they wouldn't, they wouldn't follow God and receive the blessings that he had. They settled in the land that he gave them, the promised land. And for a while, they did follow the law of Moses. They worshiped God. They lived for him. But they began to caught up in, in other people and the other gods that other nations worshiped. And, you know, the grass always looks greener on the other side. Eventually, they got tired of following God's ways. They called for a king like the other nations had. And God gave it to them because he was wanting to teach them. They half-heartedly went through the motions of following God. 
In fact, in the book of Malachi, uh, God spoke through the prophet and said, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. God's saying, look, people, if you're not going to follow me wholeheartedly, I'm kind of done with you. God wants his people to be his people. And the people of Israel violated the covenant. You know, if either party in a covenant violates that covenant, that covenant is void. The prophets had warned about it. They had warned Isaiah and Jeremiah. Man, you read those books and you see the warnings that came. Isaiah said, you people are not listening. You're not perceiving what God wants to do. In the book of uh, Jeremiah in chapter 19, is a, a great story. And God spoke to Jeremiah and he said, I want you to go by... Uh, a clay jar it's probably you know about that tall and uh, made out of clay and he said I want you to gather the elders of Israel and I want you to lead them down to the valley of Ben-Hanom this is the trash dump for the city of Jerusalem and I want you to take them down there and tell them they're not listening they're not following God and then I want you to break that jar into tiny little pieces and tell the people, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow God. Because when God withholds his blessings from you, you don't know what's going to happen. On the other hand, you can't imagine how much God heads off when you are following him, and when you're seeking him, and when you're worshiping him. It was a disaster. The people didn't listen. And eventually God just stepped back and allowed Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come in and take all the people captive. His nation was much stronger than Israel because they were so weak and they weren't following God. And Nebuchadnezzar took all the people back to Babylon in slavery. He destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And all their dreams were gone. And we say, God just gave up. No, God didn't give up. In fact, he spoke to the people there in Babylon. And in the book of uh, Jeremiah, in chapter 29, listen to what he said to the people. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, now you say, why 70 years? Because God wanted that whole generation that had not followed him to pass on and die out, and he was going to bring this new generation uh, back. When 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then over in chapter 31, God told the people, the day is coming when I'm going to present to you a new covenant. A new covenant. And I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And he says in there, I will be your God and you will be my people. So God brought a new covenant to mind for these people. You know, a covenant is a testament to what, uh, to what you will do. When you make a covenant, you're saying, I'm going to do this. And God had said his part 
and told the people their part was to make him their God. But now there's a new covenant. That's why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You know, Tim Keller tells a story. Tim Keller's a preacher and an author. And when he first went to his church, Redeemer Church, in New York City, and he started working. He told his wife when he went there, the next three years, I'm going to be working day and night to get this church on track and, and to bring it to where it needs to be. So I, I'm, I'm going to be working a lot. And his wife agreed, this is important work, and I'm going to give you three years. You work all you want to work for the next three years. But after three years now, you've got to give me some time. Well, three years went and passed, and Tim's still working. 60, 70, 80 hours a week, exhausted when he got home, didn't have anything left for his family. And six months more went by, and his wife said, you're not listening, you've got to give me time. And more time went, and she said, not listening, and he just kept working. And so one day he said, I came home, and the front door to the house, to the apartment, was open. And I went in the house, and my wife was sitting out on the back patio, and she had a hammer and she had some of our little saucer plates from our fine china we got when we got married years ago. And she'd already broken two of those saucers with the hammer. And she had a third one there. And then I looked off to the side and she had another whole stack of saucers. And he said, he looked at her and he said, have you lost it? And she said, no, I'm trying to get your attention. And she broke that third saucer. And he said, you got my attention now. Don't break any more china. And she said, you've not been listening to me. I need time with you. I need you. I'm married to you, but I don't have you. You're married to the church. I need you. And he began a conversation and listened and agreed that he was going to spend more time with her. And she said, I'm so glad you listened because I was getting ready to grab that fourth plate. And to be honest with you, these three plates here, the cups that go with them are broken years ago. And so I could afford to lose them, but I didn't want to lose another one. But you know, I think that's how God felt when he had Jeremiah go and smash that jar. That you people are not listening to me. And they weren't because they violated his covenant. But there's hope. There's this new covenant. God made a new covenant. And this covenant was not of the law. God said, I'm going to write my law in your hearts. He does that through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us, Peter preached in Acts 2.38, when you believe and you repent and you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of you and guide you and direct you. And you know, the covenant promises always, I will be your God and you will be my people. But we have to do our part in the covenant. The night before he died, Jesus established a ceremony which we took part in today. It's called Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And in that ceremony, we have a piece of bread and we have the grape juice. The, the bread symbolizes his body that was pierced on the cross. And the blood, the, the juice symbolizes his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And, and Jesus established that ceremony because he didn't want us to forget that he paid our penalty on the cross 
so that we could be forgiven. And while we are alienated from God in our sin, we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus and we restore the relationship with God. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that the whole world needs, is to be forgiven so they can live under the grace of God and the blessing of God. And this covenant has always been that God will be our God and we will be His people. Now, it says there that the author is reaffirming the hope that we have. In fact, it calls the hope an anchor for the soul. Leon Moore said, While the metaphor of the anchor is widely used in antiquity, it occurs only here in the New Testament. The ship, firmly anchored, is safe from idle drifting. Its position and safety are sure. So hope is a stabilizing force for the Christian. And we, we have that hope. We have that stabilizing force if we latch on to Jesus and believe in Him and follow Him. It's an anchor for our soul. You know, we're two-part beings. We are a physical body. But we all have a soul. That soul is the spiritual part of us. It's the part that thinks. It's the part that makes decisions. It's the part of the person that interacts. It's the part that connects to God's Spirit. It is the part of our body that, that Jesus wants to have. And our hope is in Jesus as the anchor for our soul. He's the one that keeps us true. He holds us in place so that we can be all that God wants us to be. It keeps us from being swayed by outside influences and by following the ways of the devil. Now it goes on to say this hope enters the inner sanctuary. You have to understand a little bit about the temple to know this. You know, at the temple in Jerusalem, where the presence of God was, uh, there was an outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles, and anybody could enter into that part. And then beyond that was the court of women. And that place, men and women of Israel could go into that court, but if you were a Gentile and not a Jew, you couldn't go in. Then there was another court. It was called the court of Israel. And there only the, the men of Israel could go into that court. And then there was the court of priests. And that's where they went to offer the sacrifices and to do business with God on behalf of the people. And only a priest could go in. But at the back of the temple in the center was this cubed room. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God. In fact, they said God dwelled on the mercy seat, the top of that Ark of the Covenant. And in that little box there was God sitting on top. And the high priest would go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation and any that they had forgotten to make a, a sacrifice for to make sure they were covered every year. And only the high priest, only one time a year could go into that room. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the Bible says that curtain was torn in two. And through Jesus, we now had direct access to God. We didn't have to go through a priest anymore. We have Jesus as our high priest, it says. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus. 
And that's the hope that we as a church want to bring to the whole world. That God loves them and wants to offer them hope for the best life here and an eternal life in the future. You know, I was reading this week that a study was done of all places, Harvard University. It's a serious study. And it was done in conjunction with the American Bible Society and Harvard's University's Human Flourishing Program. And they did a study, and you know what they found? That frequent Bible readers are 33% more hopeful than regular Scripture readers. Here's what they found. That on a scale of 1 to 100, 100 being the most hopeful that American people who read the Bible maybe three or four times a year were 42% hopeful. But the people who read monthly scored 59. And the people who read weekly scored 66. And the people who read three or four times a week scored 75. What they also found is those people that read frequently and attended a church service and attend, were part of a spiritual community were even more hopeful than the 75%. You understand, God brings hope to the world. And he wants us to take that hope out to a world that doesn't understand God, that doesn't know God. Because we know that there's something powerful about hope. And we want to get that message out. So here's our connection point. Those who commit to Jesus Christ will find that hope in Him changes everything. Listen. Hope in Jesus changes the way you view the world. It changes the way you worship God. It changes the way you relate to people. It changes the way you raise your kids, the way you work your job, the way you enjoy your spare time, the way you spend your money, the way you give your money. It changes the blessings that you receive while you're on this earth. It changes your destination for eternity. Hope changes everything. And God wants us to be a people of hope, and we want to... We want people in our community and throughout the world to know that hope in Jesus changes everything. In Colossians 1.27, the scripture says, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that is the people of the world, the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we all believers have Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And we have the opportunity to bring the glory of knowing Him to the world. That's what our church is going to be about going forward. Because hope changes everything. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you. I thank you for the hope that you have to offer us. Hope is such a wonderful word. It is a, it is a positive affirmation that we believe that what you have promised is true. And as we go forward, we want to be a people of hope here at Central Christian Church. And we want to bring that hope to our community and to the world beyond that people might know that Jesus is there for them. He died for them. 
He rose victorious. And he brings us the hope of a good life here and a grand life in the world beyond. And so we lift it up to you today. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we pray and praise. Amen.